this episode of The Midwife's Cauldron, we have Dr. Marina Veckant. She is a midwife and postdoctoral researcher based at Edith Cohen University in Western Australia. Building on her 13 years experience in midwifery practice, education and research in Germany, UK and Australia, Marina is committed to improving maternity care services through better understandings of birth physiology. Her current program of research focuses on natural fluctuations and pauses during labor and birth and seeks to normalize physiological plateaus as a strategy to reduce childbirth medicalization. In this episode, we discuss what are physiological plateaus in labor? Are labor pauses normal? When do they occur during labor and birth? And how long do they last? What's the defining feature of a physiological plateau? And how do midwives think and work with them based on their experiences? So you know the drill. Put the kettle on or put the keys in the ignition and get ready for an awesome episode as we delve into the cauldron. I'm Katie James and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now and hear us on your favorite podcast host. But just a sec, before we start on this epic episode, if you love the show and want more from Rachel and me, then head on over to our websites and check out all the courses, books, collectives a go-go. You'll find all the details and occasional discount deals on the old Instagram at The Midwife's Cauldron or, of course, in the show notes below. And if you really, really love the show, please consider two things, a single or a monthly donation over on Patreon or even buy me a coffee. And remember, that review you leave on your podcast host really makes a difference in who listens in. Thank you for your support. We just love having you bubbling away with us. Marina, welcome to The Cauldron. It is an absolute delight to have you here with us today. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you so much, Rachel, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here and I'm really grateful for the listeners who are tuning in today. Ah, uh, yes, I think we are going to have a marvellous episode for them to listen to. So if we can start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you actually ended up doing the PhD, looking into the topic we will be discussing today? Yes, uh, I would love to. So um, my background is in midwifery. So I'm a midwife. I qualified in 2010. And at the moment, I just completed my PhD recently. So I'm at the moment, I'm 100 based research, 100 percent research based. And so in the past year since qualifying as a midwife, I've done a lot of different things like all the midwives usually do. You know, you're trying to do everything really. There's so many exciting things to explore. Um, I worked in, in clinical practice as a midwife in a high-risk um, labor ward unit in the UK after qualifying in Germany. And, and um, we had about 9,000 
first planum. So we had 13 labor suites. I was pretty much socialized into high risk labor care. And that shaped me and this really shaped me as well. And then later I went on to work in community services in UK. I also completed my master's degree in midwifery and women's health in the UK at the University of Central Lancashire, which is a bit in the north. And um, that pretty much socialized me into the whole normalizing childbirth movement because we have Professor Sue Down sitting there with a pretty marvelous team around her. And all those people are just having so much energy and so much movement creating around keeping childbirth physiology. And that really shaped me as well. So later I returned to Germany again um, when I was expecting my second child just to keep things a bit more quiet. Um, with the family and then I was working in research I was also working as a head of midwifery school a bit later and then I was working as an independent midwife creating uh, midwifery services for women with a refugee background and women who are seeking asylum in Germany so I was only focusing on this group at that time and then in 2019 I relocated to Australia pretty much to do my PhD here and that's what I've been doing in the past four years researching um, something um, that can be called natural pauses or plateaus during childbirth. I'm sure we'll discuss the term today. There's not really one agreed upon term for this, but I'm really looking at the fluctuations of labor patterns and looking at what crazy things labor does and still being normal during these crazy patterns that it does. Fantastic. Yeah, and I, I think I met you over in WA, didn't I, first? Yes. While you, when you were still doing your PhD. So you, you've actually finished now. Are you a doctor now? Yes, officially, Dr. Fledgling, Fledgling Yay! Baby Researcher now. Woohoo! <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, when I imme- immediately said we have to get you on because this topic is so interesting. So before we head into what you found, what is the kind of current belief around labour patterns? What are we taught in textbooks and guidelines? Yeah, thanks. So that's a big and very important question. And in guidelines and in textbooks, we're usually still taught, and by we, I mean midwives, obstetricians, pretty much anybody who has to do with the childbirth uh, space. We're pretty much still taught that labor should continuously progress. So there's a distinct onset of labor, and then it should progress somewhat linearly, somewhat exponentially, really, if we still use the Friedman curve. And um, there's not really room in this definition for any pauses to occur during labor. And then people use a lot of different definitions to define what is good progress. Usually when we talk about progress, people equate that with um, cervical dilation. So that is people wanting to do vaginal examinations to assess the um, cervical dilation and then taking this. Uh, and extrapolating from this the belief that this is labor progress. And then we have different things. For example, some people expect a one centimeter per hour cervical dilation. Other people are talking about half a centimeter per hour. And then we have the new World Health Organization Labor Care Guide, which is now recommending different sets of um, cervical dilation per hour, depending on the phase of labor. But all of the approaches that we teach in all the midwifery textbooks and obstetricians textbooks is that labor, once it started, should progress continuously at this continuously increasing pace, and we don't really have any room for pauses during this. And did you, so were you aware of pauses before you did your PhD? Is that kind of what you wanted to look at, or did you discover them when you started? Uh, Yes and no, this is really hard. So, um, I think I was aware on an unaware level sort of that there are pauses that occur during labor because as midwives, we care for women, we observe women, we see that it's happening all the time. So even the first woman that I cared for during my training, 
you realize that there are pause that things are slowing down when women come to hospital, things are slowing down sometimes in the second stage just before the baby's born. So I think we see that, but I didn't have any term for that. And because I wasn't taught that it exists, I didn't have anything how I could conceptualize it in my brain. And then I went through my own childbirthing experiences, which are, as we all know, pretty influential for any woman who births. And then I had these slow patterns as well with a lot of poses, no term to put onto this. It was just weird. And I was just very lucky to have midwives who supported me with that and did not push me to have a cesarean section or anything. And then the first time I really heard about this concept was um, I was participating in a European research collaboration, which is called Cost Action. And it's really connecting researchers around childbirth in the whole of Europe and beyond Europe um, who are pushing to normalize childbirth. And we were having regular meetings. And at one of those meetings, um, somebody put up a poster. And on this poster, that's somebody that was um, Nele Kruger, who is a midwife who's currently practicing independently in Germany and did her master's in Austria. And she did this incredible work where she spoke to different midwives and they had this term they used, which was, um, I think, natural resting pauses during birth. And she presented her research on this poster. And I read about resting pauses during birth and it just made my heart rise and just <laughs> immediately clear that this was a topic that deeply resonated with me and that I wanted to do research in. And so you did. I experienced, but I couldn't put a name on, sort of. Yeah, isn't that always the beginning? It's when that spark comes and you're like, I I have to study this. No one's given me the answers yet. And so yeah. I suppose that leads me to saying, well, what have you found in your research? What are some of the answers that you found and that we've got now? Yeah, plenty of exciting stuff to be honest a lot of things that we expected and very many things that we did not expect so that was really interesting mm. this journey I think the most important finding is that uh, what we found is so uh, well I have to start differently we spoke to about 20 midwives across the whole of Australia and those midwives had very different experience some had been working for years and years 40 years plus in independent midwifery uh, some had worked for only one year in clinical midwifery and then everything in between so we had the whole collection of ideas and a whole tapestry of experiences so the main finding that we had this that physiological plateaus are absolutely normal and natural during childbirth so all the midwives reported that they see physiological plateaus those natural pauses occurring during the entire continuum of childbirth right from the beginning through the middle first second third stage right until imminently before the baby is born so that is something that seems to be happening all the time and midwives are observing it very commonly I suppose for me, the fact that we're seeing plateaus all the way through the whole childbirth process. I mean, I have to think back a long time, but it, it I know that there would be many times where it's just this kind of like, oh, things have just stopped. And I don't know why. And I can imagine that where I trained was very big tertiary unit, like you were in the UK, me and Rachel both trained in a big tertiary unit, you know, big conveyor belts we would have probably been pressured and pushed to put up syntocin on to get things going. But I changed and I went to a much smaller unit where there was, like when you moved, some incredible midwives that were able to, you know, I'd maybe go out and say, this is going on. I'm really not sure because my training has told me I now need to maybe do something because this is a problem, so to speak. And they would have gone, it's okay. This is normal. We'll sit, we'll watch, we'll wait, maybe try different positions have you thought about changing the atmosphere da, 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 talk to the woman the partner see what's going on blah, blah 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 and I think 
it's almost like there was no, there's never been any, well, for me, I mean, it's been a long time, but no kind of tentative, like you say, it's not in the textbooks. So there's nothing to grasp onto to go, this is normal, this is okay. And I can be strong in myself to say, we're okay here. Um, we're going to just continue. It's just a pause. And this is really normal. I suppose I'm waffling on making it make sense in my own head that I can imagine many midwives, depending on how they work or how they've been trained, either are within the realms of going, yep, I've seen this loads, or yep, I'm being trained by midwives who are reassuring me, or they're midwives who are going, oh, oh, oh we're going to have to start syntocinol. We're going to need to get this labor going. There's something wrong here. Did, did you find a difference between the context the midwives are working in? Yeah, absolutely. Incredibly important that you're raising this. We did find a difference. So what happened, and this is one of the chance findings we kind of had, is that we realized that it really depends on the experiences you have. Um, and that depends on what kind of training you had, what kind of experiences you made in practice, and also what kind of support networks you have around yourself. Like the people around you, are they panicking when labor slows down or are they reassuring you, just like you said, Katie, and telling you, yeah, this is absolutely normal. I've seen that happen a thousand times. So it depends on that. And the biggest influence is probably how much um, how much chance we had to witness physiological childbirth. And this is a big issue because physiological childbirth is vanishing around the globe. So the rates of physiological childbirth are dropping dramatically, plummeting in so many countries. So our exposure, even as midwives, I'm not even talking about obstetricians, even as midwives, our exposure to physiological birth can be quite limited, even during our training. And then finding those people who can support us, who have a lot of experience with physiological plateaus is sometimes really difficult because they maybe work independently. We're not supported to be with them during our training, things like that. But yes, we found this big difference. So basically what we found is it depends a lot on your childbirth philosophy, how you conceptualize slowing labor. Now, if you feel confident with the belief that labor works, childbirth works, women can do it, and you're um, able and ready to accept a little bit of uncertainty about childbirth, not really wanting to predict everything, but sitting with this uncertainty and being comfortable with that, then those people who do that, who have this childbirth philosophy, they are really comfortable framing those slowing patterns as physiological plateaus and really sitting and waiting it out until labor resumes naturally. And then if you didn't have the chance to witness physiological childbirth so much, then you're much more likely to be fearful of birth, to have this risk framework from which you're working, and to have this immediate idea that if it's slowing down, that this is labor dystocia or failure to progress, how we also call it. So mm -hmm. from this philosophy, we're really looking at slowing labor and immediately panicking, and then we have to intervene. So it really depends on the personal philosophy that we hold and the philosophy that the people around us are fostering when we practice as midwives. And I'm just realizing that we haven't even uh, defined physiological plateaus yet. So we probably have to do that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> yes, go for it. <laughs> so as part of our research, an aim of our work was to define physiological plateaus because we looked at the literature in the field and there is a lot of, I would say, it's like a rumor among midwives. Midwives talk about this so much. When we meet up for coffee, we're sharing these stories stories and a lot of midwifery knowledge is shared through storytelling and we talk about physiologic plateaus all the time you know this woman oh she paused and then two hours later it started again so we do that but a lot of this knowledge is not recorded and it's also not published in peer-reviewed journals so we're really having a problem to access this knowledge and one of our biggest aims was to actually define what physiological plateaus are and then after our study we ended up defining physiological plateaus 
as any slowing, stalling, or pausing labor patterns that can occur during the entire continuum of labor and birth. It can happen at all the stages of birth. It has varying durations. So some plateaus are just 10 minutes. Some plateaus are several hours. Few plateaus are actually a couple of days long. And the defining feature of physiological plateaus, like the name says, that it's physiological. There is zero sign of pathology in the mother and no sign of pathology in the baby. So we're not concerned about either of them. And then another feature of physiological plateaus is that they self-resolve. And that's really important. So labor resumes naturally after physiological plateaus without us having to do anything. So we don't need to do medical interventions. So this is how we frame this and putting this word physiological plateau on it, but not perfectly happy with this term, but because we don't have anything else at the moment, we need to live with it for now. Great. I mean, it's great to have no, something. that's really well defined. Yeah, really well defined. And it's a tangible thing to hold on to and be able to say, this is this, which when, when it's out in the ether and there's nothing, uh, how do you grasp, how do you describe what's going on to a colleague who maybe isn't on the same vein of thinking as you, if you're working within a, within a system, a hospital system? And as you were saying, it's actually just pausing has been viewed as pathological, mm. as some kind of obstructed labour. But, you know, certainly from my experience in an actual obstructed labour, which is pretty rare, the contractions don't stop. They actually just change into these really kind of odd contractions with the body trying to get the baby through. It's it's a really distinct and different to physiological labour. And it's not a pause. It's it's something different to that, you know, pausing isn't a pathology. Yeah, that's really important that you're saying that. And I think this this whole idea that pausing is a pathology is a direct result of our model that says that labor should progress continuously. And that's just a legacy of the Friedman curve, which we are still battling, which has been disproven countless times with so many studies and so much evidence. And even you have other podcast episodes where this has been discussed in detail. So we know this is not how it works. But one result of this flawed model is that we still believe pausing is abnormal. Mm. Mm. And was there a difference in in pausing in the different phases? Like, did, did you, I know you weren't looking for a cause, you were more kind of looking at the concept, but did you come up with any ideas about what's happening in, in terms of physiology when labour pauses? Yes, uh, yes. And we were actually also looking at causes or things that, that might cause plateaus. Um, it's very different. I think the only way I can summarise is that, like, just like, Birth is different for every woman and every woman is different. Every plateau is different, really depending on the individual situation. So we have, for example, maternal factors that we know that can cause plateaus. If the mother is um, anxious, fearful, we already know from all the physiology and hormonal things that are happening in the body that this can slow labor down temporarily. And then if the woman feels comfortable again, it will just pick up again. So a common example is when women are at home and they're having these really intense contractions and they're deciding, yes, now I'm going to hospital or birth center or whatever and then they contractions and and often they're provided oh maybe this woman she wasn't really in labor or she really overestimated how intense it was but more likely this woman just experienced physiological plateau as a response to traveling to the other location being uncomfortable during the ride having excessive pain during this ride having to move being anxious all these things so there's one study for example that found out that 50 percent of women experience a slowing of their contraction pattern when they relocate from home to hospital 
So it could be quite substantial how many women experience that. So that's just the psychology of it. And a lot of it is around the psychology, the rite of passage that we know women sometimes have to do this integration in their head when they're birthing or working through previous trauma, which resurfaces due to the intimacy of birth. Um, as well, things like the mother is thirsty, she's hungry, she hasn't slept for three days, so now her body's just exhausted, and then it's going in this natural resting period. We have fetal factors that can cause plateaus. For example, depending on the fetal position, we know that occipital posterior position seems to create plateaus during labor. Uh, there can also be some complications with the umbilical cord. By complications, I don't mean pathological, but something like a short cord or a cord that is temporarily compressed. Um, also when the baby seems exhausted during labor. And then we have, and this is my last and final and absolutely favorite category, um, some midwives in our study, they entertained the idea of whether women might be able to slow down labor pretty much at will, more or less consciously, and that results around three topics. The first one was not having the right people around, and I think we've all witnessed this. A woman might be waiting for her birth partner or for her favorite midwife, and then things don't really start rolling. Yeah. Um, another thing was not the right time. So if a woman really wants to give birth on Monday, something's not work at all for her, and then labor slows down again. And then the third and final one is not the right place. So if somebody really wants to birth at home or in a birth center or in a special place and it's not right there, then sometimes that just means that labor will slow down as well. So we have a lot of different reasons why, why labor can slow down quite naturally and quite physiologically. We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mom, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the global lactation clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. That's always fascinated me that that seeing that like waiting for the birth partner and everything slowed and then it's within sometimes minutes like everything just speeds up and then all of a sudden whoop, this baby comes out and you're like oh cuz they were waiting and it's just like the mind is fascinating and we cannot separate the mind from the body in anything in our lives um or alternatively they wait till somebody leaves the room yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah absolutely yeah I mean it's just about feeling that comfort but that's incredible and I love the fact that 
you know, midwives talk about that. It's almost like we talk about it secretly, thinking this is a bit too woo. Um, but the fact that so many midwives are talking about it, you know that, you know, that mind is playing a role in how the hormones are releasing and how we're, you know, settling ourselves into labor and, and birth. And as midwives, we need to experience it to, to kind of understand it. And if, mm-hmm. you know, I learned this when I moved out of hospital, because in hospital, I think it was after an hour, you had to go and report that the contractions had slowed down. And then, of course, you would then, that was a stalled labour. So now we're on to syntocinon and, and speeding the labour. So you never actually got to see plateaus resolving themselves until you started to back off, which I started to do. But it wasn't until I went into the community and you're at home and you don't have, you know, you don't have those guidelines. You don't have those restrictions. And labour would just stop and start. And, we, you know, the midwives would go to have and sleep and then wake up and then it would be starting off again. And it was just a kind of really normal thing to then observe. Initially, it was really worrying because I had never seen it. But then seeing it, you then get confident that this is normal. And if if we're not allowing midwives to have these experiences and see it, then how are they ever going to know how to support it and, and, you know, and back off? Yes, and I think it's it's also important to realise that this pause, I don't think it's happening just randomly just because it's like an error or a failure. I think there's something really valuable happening in that pause. Mm-hmm. And the participants in our study, they talked about things like integration. So that is this mind-body connection again, um, integrating some process, but also about real-life physical adaptation. So maybe the baby is just needing to do those extra turns or needing extra time to find the right way or just needing this break of contractions to recover and regather the energy yeah. because before the final pushing phase starts. So I think something really, really important is happening during that time. I have actually... A quote open here of a participant. If um, there's time, I'd love to read it out to you. It's very short, okay? So she said, this is Mary, but of course that's a pseudonym. So she says, I think the body is just a little bit smarter than all of us sometimes. Maybe the woman's uterus is just having a rest and just relaxing for a little bit. It's not working so hard right now. It's having rest. And then she'll wake up and bang, it's full on and she'll have a baby. And guess what? She does not have a PPH. And I've always thought that there is just wisdom in that pause when the body decides to do it and that we don't always need to rush in and get in the way of it. And I don't know why the body does that. It's very clever, though. It knows what it's doing. I think there's not enough respect for those normal physiological things that happen. If they are happening with a lot of women and those women end up with a healthy baby and a healthy birth at the end, then there must be something normal and right about it as opposed to something wrong with it. It must be normal. It makes perfect sense. It's like, Mm. you know, we're doing a a massive, a massive job of of energy expenditure. And to take a little pause is, is it just, it's like a power nap that might last a few hours or something. And then it's like, okay, right, I've recouped. Here we go. But also we forget that, you know, the mother and baby are deeply connected. Their nervous systems are connected. And women in undisturbed birth, their bodies are responding to their baby to keep the baby safe as well. So, so as you were saying, you know, these adjustments of the labor pattern to meet the needs of the baby 
make perfect sense. And I don't, I don't know whether I've told you this story before, possibly have, because it was one that absolutely transformed my understanding of birth. And that was a woman having a first baby whose contractions were, you know, five minutes apart, eight minutes apart, never closer than five. And she had a very long labor because her contractions were so spaced out. And she had pauses within that. And then when her baby was born, it was, you know, it wasn't small, but it looked a little bit growth restricted. The placenta was not great. The cord was not great. It was born in the call. And that was probably the labor that baby needed. If that baby had had a more powerful labor, the placenta probably wouldn't have exchanged oxygen effectively. It was just like, oh, okay. That, you know, her body knew how to birth that baby safely. Yeah, and isn't that powerful? Like the, the body of the mother and the body of the baby seem to talk, you know, sort of during hormonal or using neurochemical feedback loops. They are just really deeply connected, like you're saying. And there's this, this really strong wisdom, I think, why, why these pauses are happening, whether the baby's initiating them or the mother's initiating them or this organism together is initiating them. Yeah. Yes, I think um, we have a big problem that. In obstetrics um, or in our obstetric and medicalized models of care, there's a lot of fear around it because people often have the first thought that there might be a risk of PPH if there's too long a pause for whichever reason, um, which is not really evidence supported at the moment. And there's also a fear of um, obstetric fistula, which is, of course, a real problem that is happening in low resource countries, not so much in high resource countries, but we don't want it to reoccur. So we don't want to look at endless um, second stages either. But I think something important to consider is that during pauses, if there are no contractions, and the contractions are what is causing stress for the baby, metabolic stress. And if those contractions are gone, then this is not a stressful time for mother and baby. This is a relaxing mm. time for mother and baby. It's not dangerous yeah. per se. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and with obstructed labor, there's a lot of really kind of odd, like I was saying, a contraction pattern that's very different and distinct before it all stops. You know, you don't, if it's a truly obstructed labor, the first thing isn't that labor stops it goes through this odd pattern first. I think um, at the moment of the problem that we're having, so like we said before, a lot of midwives are talking a lot about this. Um, a lot of midwives are experiencing this. It doesn't really seem anything new. So it's, I think, uh, like an incredibly old concept, uh, hundreds of years old. Midwives have known about this ever since. And it's um, at the same time also a new concept because we're trying to reestablish it after it has been mm. buried up medicalization of childbirth so we're trying to get this into the forefront again and my hope is that if we can recognize physiological plateaus formally like really officially in the way that midwives can actually write down in the medical documentation physiological plateau don't touch it don't give up plantation <laughs> of labor oxytocin like really safely if we can get it there then this would be a really powerful way to reframe how we define physiological childbirth and would be a powerful way to protect women from those unnecessary unnecessary interventions during childbirth where we see that a lot of women are subject to oxytocin during birth just to speed things up we know about all the side effects of oxytocin we know that it's risky for my mom and baby to have it we also know and there's a couple of studies showing that oxytocin is being used randomly and chaotically with different regimens so a lot of stuff is happening that shouldn't be happening and we need to protect women from that so i think recognizing physiologic plateaus could be one way that we can go to really push into this space and normalize childbirth again but yeah we need to start talking about it and also using a term that we can agree upon which we still have to find 
Yes, I liked your um your newsletter <laughs> with all the different terms in that the midwives yeah, were too. using. And I wanted to yeah. ask if you had a yeah. favourite term. Oh, I don't actually have a favourite term. I love how midwives are incredibly creative um, using their own terms. Now, every country will have their different terms in their language, of course. Um, what is often used in an Anglophone room is um, rest and be thankful phase or low, mm. low during transition or latency or period of rest. Um, still pool, something like this. Some people are really creative. They're saying, oh, this is stage 2.5 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> quite you, you know really you don't need more <laughs> yeah. well, people are really coming up with their own terms and um i think um i settled on physiological plateaus for now which has been suggested by a couple of people in the past most recently probably by um, betty and davis in canada and, and her research team um, because it has a term physiological in it, and it's incredibly important at the moment to stress that it's something physiological too, because there will be a lot of people saying, no, this is not a thing. So we will be battling for this concept. And um, further down the road, I really want to ask women how they want to call it, because in the past we haven't been great in medicine calling things. We've called things like failure to progress, insufficiency, you know, all these things that are really painful for women to hear and really the language we use is so important. So at the moment, we're conducting a study where we're talking to women and we hope to establish a different term. But for now, in the meantime, I'm just settling on physiological plateaus. That would be great to have a term by women <laughs> rather than <laughs> by care providers and, and one that's not named after a man, which is like what most of the terms <laughs> seem to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> True. Um, I wanted to ask about the concept of cervical reversal and recoil, because this is another thing that midwives talk about kind of behind the scenes. Can you tell us more about it? Yes, it's incredibly interesting. I haven't come across this concept before, um, but I think it's like for many midwives, the first time you hear about it, you're like, wow, this is a thing. OK, that's cool. Because um, cervical recall or cervical reversal, which is two most commonly used terms for this phenomenon, um, describe a phenomenon where, where the cervix during labor doesn't open and dilate, but it goes sort of backwards. So it's contracting again to a smaller diameter than before. So a woman who might have been six centimeters dilated suddenly is only four centimeters dilated. And the way we often look at this is that we say, oh, whoever examined this woman probably didn't do a good job. Even if the same midwife examined the woman and she knows it was six centimeters before and now it's four, this midwife will probably tell herself, oh, I didn't do a good job. I did a mistake. How could that happen to me? Oh, my God. I think this is new to me. My God, I thought that I just wasn't very <laughs> clever. <laughs> it happens a lot, yeah. And then we blame people for this happening because we it's not, again, it's not really accepted knowledge that it's happening, but we do have quite a bit of evidence, teeny tiny amounts, but a lot of rumors among midwives that this is happening. And we also have one study in Canada. It was pretty remarkable. So they collected data from a huge sample um, and at a point where they had around 9,000 births, they didn't stop collecting data then, but they did a preliminary analysis looking at only cervical reversal. And these were home birthing women. And they reported it across the entire first stage, really. So until 10 centimeters cervical patient, women often um, had a um, cervical reversal 
one or two or three centimeters so it didn't go from 10 to zero but went from you know seven to five or something like that but it happened quite commonly and that was quite remarkable for me to see but again because it's not accepted knowledge we are pretty much lacking language around this lacking recognition around this and this is not something we're going to find in midwifery tech at the moment or obstetrician textbooks so at the moment we are summarizing these cervical reversals under the umbrella term of physiological plateaus as well just because we try to capture everything but yeah it's a very distinct phenomenon really interesting really interesting and really kind of self-affirming that you can be seeing this and you're not kind of going crazy that your your skills so to speak <laughs> however you know different size fingers different size hands are measuring anyway it's never going to be accurate yeah. is it um and you know one person coming in and doing a vaginal examination compared to another person but however if you're the only person there and you are happening to do vaginal examinations and you have no concept of this I just yeah it's like what's going on so it's really good that this is all being looked at and being given kind of definitions for for midwives to be able to practice safely, to be able to practice with confidence, to be able to reassure the woman, the family, the partners that she's supporting. I just, there is so much in this work, Marina, that is going to be so useful and to grow upon as well. That's what we need is like you say, to get this into, into textbooks. But I mean, for me, it's like, you know, the majority of women are still birthing in hospitals. If we can have ways of of looking at birth still through a physiological lens and knowing that this is the boundaries of physiology this is the boundaries of pathology and it gives midwives women more time and hopefully we start reducing some of these interventions that are totally unnecessary yeah that's incredibly important really what we're saying just women more time and uh, midwives often use the word allowing in our study, allowing women more time, which is really not a word that we should be using all about women and what they do during labor. But this is the reality of it. Um, so at the moment, a problem that we're having is that midwives aren't really um, having a lot of opportunities to support women with physiological plateaus in medicalized birthing environments because our policies, our guidelines, they don't really allow these pauses to happen. They automatically define them as pathological. So midwives in our study were extremely creative protecting women with those pauses. For example, if they had mandated cervical um, dilation assessments or vaginal examinations and they carried them out, they sometimes reported out different values than what they examined. And I think a lot of midwives will be listening. They know this or they've done this before. We know that this is something that is also called doing good by stealth or doing things secretly to protect the woman. So as midwives, we sometimes create this protective bubble around this woman controlling pretty much what information leaves the room and this is a hot topic because a lot of people will not want to hear about it and it's really important how we frame this when we talk to others about it especially in the wider medicalized environment um, because this is not midwives going rogue this is not midwives doing something that is wrong this is midwives um, fighting for women's rights in a system that is not really supporting women to give birth in the way that they want to birth and to give birth safely. So I find this as an act of resistance in an environment that's not really supportive, neither for women nor for midwives, because midwives are suffering from this as well. So we're doing these acts of resistance, and a lot of midwives are doing this. So con 
controlling what information is leaving the room or pretending that a woman is not really in labor, saying, oh, she's not actually in second stage, she's still in first stage, um, even though the you know head is already sticking out, things like that. So midwives do a lot of things to protect women with these pauses in hospitals. Yeah, and we're in the process at the moment of trying to reclaim this knowledge that was previously known. If you talk to a midwife 200 years ago, they would have known all about plateaus and, and known they were normal. So we're kind of now in this modern era, we've had this big interruption, I guess, of birth knowledge taken away from women and, and midwives and moved into the medical sphere where we now, that's how we're looking at birth, that we really need this kind of, these kind of studies to look at it from the modern perspective and reclaim some of that knowledge kind of from it with a different lens, because obviously we're in a different era now and it's in a different context, but it's really important because we've just lost so much of the knowledge, birth knowledge that we had. Yeah, absolutely. And with a lot of that knowledge that we sort of lost or that was forcibly lost, um, we are mm. having an up because a lot of this midwifery knowledge is held by women, not by men. It's held by midwives, not by obstetricians. And it's knowledge that's generated outside the system, not so much inside the system. And by that, I mean home birthing services, independent midwifery. So we are already talking about a very small group of people globally mm -hmm. compared to the big group of people who's doing research and who historically had a lot of money, a lot more resource to do research. So even today, a lot of our research is happening in hospitals. And then we take this hospital data with highly interventional births and extrapolate from this a definition of normality, which is not really well founded. And then we apply this to all women. Really what we should be researching is physiological childbirth that is mostly happening outside of hospitals. And so we, I think, just have to amplify those voices of, of women, mm -hmm. of midwives, of people outside the system to get this midwifery knowledge back on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Another problem that we have is because a lot of our research is happening in hospitals. We're not only having this highly in interventional burst, which are then influencing our definitions of normality, but when we look at what midwives do to protect women, when they are reporting um, falsified vaginal re examination results, things like that, and that goes on record, and then this is studied, and you know, no matter which sophisticated statistical analysis you run over this data, it's still pretty much falsified data, and we don't know to which mm. extent it is correct. So it has huge implications for all the research we do in the, in the space of childbirth, really. Yeah, absolutely. I can remember filling in, and this is when it was documentation so the queensland health kind of perinatal data forms and i used to put a line through this state you know the stages of labor where it says how many hours you know were the time for the first stage time for the second stage and i put a line through and say cannot determine stages of labor and then send it in and when i was a private practice midwife i ended up on first name terms with the perinatal daughter woman in the office in brisbane because of my um you know ruining their little forms she was fine about it but but now you can't do that because apparently midwives are telling me you know with these new computer systems you have to put the numbers in to get onto the next page so you can't even so as you were saying marina so what they're what they're doing is well the first stage mm, well she has started contractions this time so we'll just put it in this time and then if they haven't done a vaginal examination, if they have done one, then they can put in a time for the second stage. If they haven't done one, then they're just guessing based on, oh, well, she started 
making pushing sounds. We'll just put that time in there. Yeah. And it's all just made up. And then it goes into the machine, as you were saying. And then those are the numbers that get churned out and given to researchers who then go, oh, the first stage of labor is usually X amount of hours. And, mm. and I don't know how we get around that if you've got computers that require you to put in numbers. Yeah, it's quite incredible. And we don't really know. I mean, it's 21st century and we don't know what is the onset of labor, what is the first stage, because it's like an artificial concept that we're just imposing. Labor is a fluent thing. It's a fluent transition from being pregnant to going into labor. Everyone who's working with women who's birthing knows that. And so, like you say, we're putting these random times down for onset of labor, for the beginning and of first stage, um, even full cervical dilation. I mean, it's pretty random if we examine a woman, when we examine her, how mm. long has she been fully dilated? Nobody knows. So all the numbers that we have on these alleged stages of labor are really random. And then, of course, we know about the uh, redefinition and looking into phases of labor rather than stages because stages don't really exist. So we're really having a lot of work to do in this space. <laughs> and we need to look at that. The data that we're using is really a bit dodgy sometimes, even though the research is high quality. Data. But I think but I think you're right. If we're going to, I think we need to start with the foundations of understanding physiology. And the only way to do that really in today's kind of birth culture is to do it outside the system. So this is kind of in births that are not happening in, in captivity, if you like, or they're not being they're not happening and with the parameters that the hospital system puts on them. So free birth really should be our foundation for understanding physiological birth when there's not even a midwife there because we are an intervention. You know, what we do will influence physiology to some degree. So this is where we need to start our reclaiming is, is there because if we can understand physiology, then we can start to understand everything that we do and whether or not it, how it influences physiology, whether or not it's supporting or not supporting. But if we're starting right up in a hospital setting, which is where all the research comes out of, you know, you, I mean, if we just pick the placental birth, you know, the active management of placentas, all of that was done with women in hospital settings and it found that it's safer to give a medication for the placenta. Well, yes, it is in that context, but we need to understand what happens outside of that context. So, yeah, that's my little rant done. I'll put my box away. Yes, no, absolutely. And the, the number of studies that we have that, that claim second stage is this and that duration based on women who are all receiving oxytocin to um, reduce the duration. Oh, sorry, not second stage, the third stage. Third stage, placenta birth, shouldn't be giving oxytocin for second <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really quite remarkable. I think this is where the power of midwifery research lies, because really the majority of women should have um, an opportunity for physiological childbirth. But the majority of research is happening in the space of pathology. It's looking at what is not going right, what is wrong, how can we fix that? And that's important, but it's affecting only a small number of women. And if we then take this definition of pathology and from that extrapolate physiology, then we are left with very little. It's like those risk categories. If we just keep inventing more and more and more risk categories, then everybody's at risk. There's no woman left who is low risk, so to speak. And the same is happening here. So as midwives, we are asking different questions than obstetricians. We're asking different questions than any other professional group. And these questions are really important and powerful because they will help us reclaim our midwifery knowledge and generate it in, an, in a format that is accepted, which at the moment is is evidence in the form of research and studies and publications in peer-reviewed journals. Yeah. 
one of our big barriers is the fact the money. There's no money really for. We needed a PhD. I my my research was PhD. When I looked at physiological birth, it's really rare for you to see research on physiological birth outside of PhDs because there isn't the funding for it. So it kind of has to be a labor of love. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I think the majority of people who are researching this area, they, they work in their spare time and at night and on the weekends. Ah, oh, it's shocking. <laughs> but, you know, it's inspirational as well because we have a lot of people who are in this space and it's a growing community and it's a growingly powerful community. And the more midwives we have coming through who are choosing this pathway of going into research next to practicing or important sometime instead of it or something the, the more powerful and the louder we get mm. in our voices yeah and it, and it supports women when we have research that's that's you know saying what women already know then it reassures them that they're, they're not actually crazy their labor did you know pan out like that and that was normal and it, that it wasn't a problem and that you know their instincts were correct in in believing that so yeah I was going to say, Katie wanted us to finish on a positive note now. Should we do a song? <laughs> we got a very bad rating the other day on Apple Podcasts. Uh, two stars. I'm surprised she gave us two, to be honest, because she said it is so depressing and all they talk about is the same stuff and the system never changes. And I was like, well, yep. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's basically yeah. it. It's really depressing. <laughs> To ignore, we have to acknowledge what is happening and it is shit because yeah. if we don't acknowledge it it's not going to change and you know I I don't find it that depressing it is frustrating but what I find really inspirational and uplifting is the number of women and midwives who are actually pulling together building solidarity and just going no that's actually I you're wrong we're right this is how birth is this is our knowledge and we're reclaiming it so I you know, I'm not, I know I sound negative, but I'm actually not that negative about it. I think it's happening. I see massive change in the last decade. So let's say kind of since I started putting this stuff out, um, 2010 onwards, these last few years, and I, I think actually COVID helped. There's a massive reclaiming of birth culture, physiological birth from the grassroots I'm talking here from kind of women free birthing women birthing outside the system and then that's kind of infiltrating into the system and you're seeing midwives in the system connecting with birth out the system it's just I see a lot of potential that's happening at the moment so see look at that me being positive I don't, I'm speechless it's fabulous <laughs> You have to keep that recorded. I am. I'm going to keep that as a snip, a snippet, like a tidbit that I'll play to myself over and over again. Oh, but yeah, I absolutely agree, Rachel. I think there's actually a lot of reason for optimism. Yes, sometimes it can be depressing because it's so hard to work against a big entrenched system that has come from historically just, you know, silencing those voices of women and midwives and the, the whole community. But we have so many things happening in the past decades. For example, we have. Um, Birth trauma is a recognized thing now. Childbirth medicalization is a recognized problem by the World Health Organization, by the International 
confederation of midwives. These are topics that are on the top agenda of the top organizations. So we're really looking into these things and not just midwives in the out of hospital space, but everybody looking at it. Mm. Um, human rights in childbirth is an acknowledged thing now. So I think the more we talk about it, it's actually having a big effect and also having a big effect for not only the women who are going to birth in the next coming decades, but also for the midwives who are growing in this culture now and who will also gain this strength from this loud noise that we're making. So I think, yeah, there's yeah. plenty of reason for optimism. I'm very optimistic that things will change the positive in the close near future. The cicadas are singing. Yes, they are. <laughs> and that's why we do the podcast. And I don't give up, even if I get a bad review saying that it's really sad and <laughs> depressing. I keep going because it's about <laughs> raising the voices of the good work that's going on and also being a bit sand in your vagina, you know, a bit angry pants. Sometimes we need to be angry. Sometimes we need to shout out. This is not on. However, look what we're doing. Look how we're giving women and midwives a voice by identifying something that's been kept underground and secret squirrel meetings over coffee and a scone. You're putting this into words. You're giving this a concept. You're giving this a graspable, tentative, um, uh, I don't have the words. That's brilliant. So it's not graspable at all. (laughs) (laughs) you're giving this substance so that we can utilize this in our practice so we can learn so we can teach others and so that we can shout loudly with a term like physiological plateaus and just like we've talked about throughout this entire podcast it is giving a voice to the midwives who then in turn give a normality and a voice to the women to say i am normal this was okay so it's probably a good that was place. A good I know it's probably a good place to wrap up. Fabulous, Marina. Is there any last thoughts that you want to slide in quickly before we um, say goodbye and wrap this episode up? Maybe one thing. I think um, the power of this whole concept of physiological plateaus is not that's a concept that we can put on paper. It's a concept that can help us redefine. What what is normal childbirth? So we are rattling the, the real basis of childbirth, the real basis and foundation of our definition of normality. And when we can redefine this and go away from, we started talking about the expectation of continuous labor progress. So when we can ditch that and say proudly and confidently, you know what, labor is actually fluctuating, it's doing this crazy stuff, and that's absolutely normal, then this is a place where I want us to be in ideally, you know, two, three years, but maybe more realistically in 10 years or so. Fabulous. Oh, it's been an utter pleasure to have you on. I have learned lots. I have settled my own past history of (laughs) early days of working with women to go, oh, good. Um, And I'm just really grateful for your work and that you've come on to speak to about this today thank you yes thank you and congratulations on on finishing becoming a doctor that's huge thanks yeah feels huge <laughs> so what's next probably shouldn't ask that, oh, you know. Uh, like everybody trying to get a foot in the door trying to establishing myself as an independent researcher which basically means working for free day and night so I'm not quite sure yet <laughs> <laughs> in the long run, I'll have to find something to earn money again. But for now, I'm continuing my research. We have uh, one current study on physiological plateaus, two further planned studies. I'm um, getting grant money in to fund this research. So this is what I'm doing at the moment. And then publishing, publishing, publishing. Get the message mm-hmm. out. <laughs> 
Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I hope you found a few golden nuggety nuggets in the show today. Please don't press pause, but instead scroll on down on your podcast app. Yep, that's it. Down there and pop a review and maybe a few stars to make our eyes twinkle with glee. For more on breastfeeding and lactation content, head on over to my website where my course is. And for courses and books from Rachel, you can find everything in the links below. So all I got to say now is see you next time. And I can't wait. Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and lactation, the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers.